Amen. Well, we got a lot to cover this morning in terms of the scriptures. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 15. Revelation 21 through 15. Um, we have been in the series in Revelation for a few weeks now. Um, this is probably the most difficult passage. So some of Revelation has been kind of difficult. This is going to it's going to kick it up a notch, all right? So we'll do our best to walk through this together. Uh, we looked at the beginning of chapter 19, where all the saints gathered together through the ages sing, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. We looked at the end of 19 with this great battle, this final climactic battle between God and His people, Christ and His people, that is, and all the armies of darkness. And in the end, of course, Christ is victorious, picturing how, this, how good will finally triumph over evil in the end. Well, today we're going to look at the end of the beginning. <laughs> the end of the beginning. Um, you know, there, there, we may see this life, some do, many see this life as all there is to it. There's nothing more than what we see. I mean, what we can feel and taste and hear and touch. But of course, the Bible says, no, there's far more to life than that. There is a spiritual side of life, something beyond merely matter. And what if, friends, what if this life and its physical makeup, the way it exists right now, was just the beginning? It's just the beginning. Um, not that it's not important. It is important. How we live our lives is extremely important. We'll see that in the text here. But it's really preparation. It's temporary for something that happens after that lasts forever. It's like reading a book. You know, when you're reading a book, you, you kind of can sense how much is left in the book. Unless you're reading a Kindle version of the book, right? An electronic version, although it has the page numbers there. That's one of the differences. Of, you know, I, I like being able to know how much is left in the book. So if I'm reading a, a book on an iPad, I don't know how much is left in that book. Uh, we may think we're sort of towards the end of the book, maybe. Uh, but in reality, God's story for us is far longer than I think we think it is. In fact, it lasts for eternity. We're at the very beginning. And we're at the, maybe the end of the beginning is starting to, to creep up on us here. Well, Revelation 20 tells us of this very thing. Uh, I did a, a funeral last Thursday for a long time member of our church. Paul Shive is a Really great uh, to see folks turn out and to celebrate his life. Actually, the flowers in front of me here are from Paul Shive's funeral. Uh, so great, in a sense, preparation for this very sermon. Uh, two things I quoted there. One, C.S. Lewis said, Now at last, this is the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I think this is so telling. This is after the end. This is after sort of Aslan's return, if you know the story and death and all that. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one. At the end of his whole seven book series. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story. Which no one on earth has read. Which goes on forever. In which every chapter is better than the one before. What a powerful picture of eternity with him. In fact if you are, have been reading your little book. Hopefully you're enjoying your little book on heaven. I think we have some back there still. Um, so if it's just like 40 questions or whatever it is, a number of questions, not even 40, 40 pages, um, questions that people have about heaven. Uh, he put this book together, again, draws from the Bible, not personal experience, but from the scriptures and what does it teach us? Well, there's a quote in there from Calvin Miller. I have it, I think, on the screen. Uh, this also is quoted at the funeral, I think, prepares us for what's to come. He wrote this, I once scorned every fearful thought of death when it was but the end of pulse and breath. 
But now my eyes have seen that past the pain, there is a world that's waiting to be claimed. Earthmaker, holy, let me now depart for living such a temporary art. And then these last two lines. And dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. S-O-D, sod. The grave itself is a doorway into something far greater. What if this world was really just the beginning, the end of the beginning? Look with me at Revelation 12. We're going to see that Jesus brings victory over spiritual evil and defeats death forever. Victory over spiritual evil and defeats death forever. Remember the symbolism here in Revelation and how powerful it really is. I'm going to do the whole chapter today, Lord willing. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and, it shut, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they are marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We got our work cut out this morning. <laughs> we got our work cut out tomorrow to understand this and then not just understand it, but apply it, look to its own application for us in our own lives. That Jesus brings victory over spiritual evil and defeats death.
forever. So there's an outline in your bulletin. Um, if you're someone who wants to follow along and take some notes um, and uh, see where we're going, uh, feel free to grab that and take some notes. All the scripture will be on the screen or you can open up your Bible um, if you want as well. But first we see that there is a time, a time to free the nations from spiritual evil. A time to free the nations is verses 1 through 3. John sees what is unseeable. (laughs) He sees what you can't naturally see with physical eyes. What does he see? An angel coming down from heaven. And he has in his hand a key. Early in Revelation, that key only belongs to Jesus. So Jesus gives him this key. And what does he do? He takes it and he binds the dragon. Uh, The dragon has appeared a few times here in Revelation. We kind of know who he is. He's also called the ancient serpent. And we started off this year doing what? Studying Genesis 1 through 3. And who's the ancient serpent? The one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. The ancient serpent is clearly, as he says here, the devil or Satan. So four names. He has many names. Four names all given to the same spiritual being, Satan. And what does he do? The angel binds him for a thousand years. (laughs) An incredibly long time period of time. I wouldn't even have a category for that length of time. And of course, a thousand is a perfect number. Ten times ten times ten. But notice how he's treated. Notice how Satan is treated. He's treated like a rabid dog. <laughs> he's, he's bound up and thrown into a cage. That's kind of the idea. Uh, he's treated so disrespectfully. Uh, he's treated like a, a problem on the side that God takes care of. I like uh, in the book The Hobbit, we had mentioned Tolkien before, uh, the, the common, the, sort of the derogative name for the dragon smog is the worm. <laughs> this big worm. That's kind of here. He's treated like a, a rabid dog, bound and thrown into a pit and shut and sealed for a reason, and tells us specifically what the reason is, so that he cannot deceive the nations. <laughs> He's kept from deceiving the nations for this thousand year period. Uh, a long, long period of time. And at the very end, we learn he is released by God through the angel. God has control over his capture and is released. And like an angry animal that's been cut from its chains or its, re- its release, what does he do? He causes havoc and problems and just for the short period of time. And then he goes and deceives the nations like he was kept from doing to bring them to war against God's people. So that's the first section here in verses 1 through 3. What is this? <laughs> uh, or maybe a better question is, when? Uh, when is this passage here? And I, I, I want to be honest and say, uh, this is perhaps the most debated passage of the entire Bible, perhaps. All right? So I want to throw that out there. So, Skinners, you came on a, an interesting week this week, all right? So um, one of the most, I would say, that you have differences among the best theologians in the world. I mean, Bible-believing, solid men and women who trust in the Bible have major differences on this. So I just just want to be clear about that. And our church does not take an official position. So so if you you hear my interpretation, say, Rick, I I don't know. I've I've learned something different and and, uh, that's not what I... That's fine. We we don't have an official position. But this is my best attempt. I've been sort of saturating myself in this all week to try to understand what is being said here. And again, how does it apply to us? And I would just say that I think this thousand-year period is not a literal number. It refers to right now. It refers to the time of Christ's coming and the time ultimately of this Satan's release, this sort of chaotic time at the end and his ultimate destruction. That's what I believe. Now, here's what I would say. Understand a couple things. 
that the majority of the church throughout its history has understood this to be referring to right now. Unquestionably. Majority of church history until about the late 1800s. The majority of Christianity in the world, outside of the United States in particular, uh, believes this to refer to right now. So I just want to give you a sense of this. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it wrong. Just understand it. And understand that my favorite theologians believe this. So <laughs> I've taken that. So all the way back from Origen, uh, an early, early theologian, to Augustine, perhaps the most influential theologian in church history, to the reformers of Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, all of them would see this as referring to what's happening during this time. So if that's the case, understand this is what Revelation does. Um, this vision happens after the vision we saw in 19. He's receiving these visions. So he receives one vision, he receives another. How do those relate? And the idea is they relate as one overlapping the other. They are the same event told twice, but from a different angle, from a different prison. Now, of course, if you're following me, don't, we'll get to application. Just try to follow me a little bit here. Uh, you would say, well, how can Satan be bound right now? <laughs> You'd say, that doesn't sound like what's happening right now. Um, I'm, I'm in good company to say that Satan is bound right now. Because Jesus said that. So I'm with Jesus on that. So that's a good place to be, right, with Jesus. Jesus used the exact same word, or the gospel used the same word, to describe Jesus binding the strong man so that he can plunder anything he wants from him. The stronger, the stronger man is, uh, can take and bind the strong man and take whatever he wants. So Jesus used that same word, but it's specific. He's not bound just endlessly. He's not bound entirely. He's not thrown in this pit and locked out for no reason. He's there, stopped from deceiving the nations. Stop from deceiving the goyim, the, the peoples of the world who have been under his authority for centuries and centuries. And now with the spread of the gospel, there is freedom for the nations if they hear this message. Satan can't yet gather the nations to himself and cause this great war. He's bound, he's trapped, he's limited in what he can accomplish during this time as the gospel reaches the ends of the world. Until the end. And then what does it say? All haywire breaks loose, right? He's let go for a short period of time and everything goes to chaos and then finally the end comes. So that's my best understanding. If you disagree, it's okay. <laughs> we can disagree on this. But here's the question for this first section. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? Remember, Revelation is written for God's people. It's written and sent to the seven churches. It's written so that they could apply it to their lives. It's not just written for theological debate. It's written to understand who God is and what he's doing. So first thing I would say is understand that he is bound. He is trapped. We don't live in constant fear of him. Yes, he has power. Yes, he's at work in the world and he's deceptive and so forth. But he's severely limited. <laughs> He's bound and trapped. It's kind of like if you ever go to a zoo um, and uh, you see a lion, you know, full-grown adult male lion. And there's a little kid standing by with his, we'll say her, her face up against the, the, the glass, you know, screen there, hands and looking at the lion. And all of a sudden the lion looks, sees the little kid, charges the kid and jumps at the wall. Ever seen like videos of that or you ever see that happen in person? And what happens? The lion hits a wall. <laughs> And can't do anything, but the kid probably gets scared and jumps back. That's Satan. He is severely bound and limited in what he can do. Uh, he is trapped. So what does that mean? We should go to the nations. 
The spiritual bondage that they have had for centuries is now freed and the opportunity for them to hear about Christ as Savior is here. I'm so glad that we're part of a church that takes seriously the mission of reaching the nations for the gospel. Like I said, right now we have a, a, our a Pastor Mike and his wife are in Nepal. I got a picture. I stole this from Amy. Um, so we have that picture? No. All right, I stole this from Amy. So Amy, don't sue me. You have the copyrights over this picture. But there he is uh, playing with, of course, Alessandra. He's there safely. Um, and they're enjoying their time there. What are they doing there? Why did we, why did we send one of our own our own families and send them to the ends of the earth and then take one of our, our, our pastors and send him there for a few weeks as well. Because we put a priority in saying, set the nations free from spiritual bondage. Satan is trapped. It will not last. <laughs> but for the time being, he is. And now is the time to get the gospel to rescue people from the bond of idolatry. Friends, there is no spiritual idol or force or religion, anything in this world that cannot be beaten, broken by the power of the gospel of Christ. He is bound. Another thing you notice is time is limited. Now, how long do we have? Uh, how, how long is this period of time? Well, a thousand years has passed. I mean, you could, you know, it's been 2,000 years, or maybe three. Who knows how long it's going to be? Um, it's revealed to be a very long time, which is a surprise, isn't it? Because most people thought the Christians in the first century would believed he was coming right back. Jesus is coming right back. But here, it's revealed to John, no, it's going to be a long, long time. And it has been a long, long time. But nevertheless, friends, it's limited. And it will come to an end. And it'll come to end in a, in a sudden way. Uh, things get really bad at the end. Expect that. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Things get bad, things get better, whatever it may be. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord. A time to free the nations from spiritual evil. But oh, four to six, four through six, we enjoy spiritual life even in death. A spiritual life even in the face of death. What do we see here? John uh, looks at theirs and, and uh, asks, where are we? Where, where, where are the believers? Where are the Christians in all this? What happens to us? He sees thrones of those who are seated with the authority to judge. And then notice what he sees next is the souls of martyrs and those who have been faithful. Uh, not their bodies, but their souls. <laughs> Disembodied, they've been killed. Their souls. Um, and what does he say? That those who have not worshipped the beast. Most likely we talked about a reference to, at least in the first century, to the Roman Empire. The fallen systems of that world. Again, a timeless reference to all systems against that uh, against God's people and that oppress God's people. Its image uh, was typical to set up an idol. Uh, I think this could be a reference to the eagle. You would, you would be forced to worship the Roman Empire. And what is the mark? Um, if you did not offer incense to the emperor, if you did not gain in the public worship of the Roman gods, you couldn't buy. You couldn't, say, you couldn't engage in the economy. You were an outcast in Rome. And the Christians clearly could not engage in that type of idolatry and many of them were killed for it. Rome's most common means of execution, execution, beheading. Many Christians were either persecuted, outcast, ostracized, or even killed. And here they are wondering, where is God in the midst of all of this of opposition? And in the midst of this, what is John right? Jesus says, those who have been beheaded, those who have not given in 
to the public worship, the fallen systems of this world, what happens? They are risen and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest don't. They wait until the end. And he calls this what? The first resurrection. Oh, is this a first? <laughs> it's the only time the word resurrection has the word first in front of it. It means there's going to be a second. <laughs> there's a first, there's going to be a second. This is the first, not the great resurrection at the end, but the first. So what is he referring to here? Something between now and that final day when God raises the living and the dead. Uh, raises, the, uh, raises all people and judges the living and the dead. He says, blessed are they, those who reign with Christ, because they won't experience the second death, a picture of hell. It has no power over them. And he describes that all of them are priests. They serve as priests before God. Uh, which we said earlier, that the priesthood of all believers, every Christian, male and female, who serves the Lord Jesus, is in a sense a priest. Because we have direct access to God. We don't have to go through somebody other than Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. We have direct access to God. Uh, I think this is a reference, friends, to our presence with Christ at death. Now, the ultimate hope, understand, the ultimate hope of the Christian faith is the great resurrection at the end of, the to- at the end of time. Uh, there will be a, a renewed heavens and an earth. And if you read in the book, he talks a lot about that in this little heaven book. Uh, but there's a picture at the end in which, which God restores this world. That's our ultimate hope as Christians. Has been for 2,000 years. But this question still remains, what happens now? What happened to all those Roman Christians who were killed for their faith? What happens to all those who follow Jesus now, today? And many of whom are killed or many of whom live ostracized because of their faith. Do they sleep in the ground? Just sort of wait? John says no. They reign with Christ until his final return. People ask sometimes, what is heaven? What's heaven? And really the answer is is kind of two things. (laughs) One, it's to be apart from the body and present with the Lord. On the very day you pass from this life, if your faith is in Christ, you'll be with the Lord. When Paul Shive breathed his last breath, his spirit left his body and went to be with the Lord. And his, he was, as we always say, more alive than he's ever been. That's heaven. But there's also something even better than that. <laughs> That's only temporary. That's only the first part of what is to come. The second is the great resurrection at the end in which God's people are renewed with spiritual renewed bodies and live forever in worship. So yes, it gets even better than simply dying and being with Jesus. That's part of that's true and I believe that 100%, but that's only the first part. There is so much more to come. Calling here is to be faithful. Be faithful now, be faithful in this life. Don't give in to the beast, meaning don't give in to this worldly system, living for money and pride, all the idols of our culture, sexuality, and all the fallen ways of this world. Follow him, even if that means opposition, and you will reign with Christ in death and for eternity. Friends, I think one of the issues that we don't take seriously, perhaps enough, in American Christianity is a theology of death. A theology of death. We don't want to think too much about it. Uh, there are many wrong views of death, and yet we're surrounded with it. We talked about this at, on Thursday at the funeral as well, that, that every funeral is a reminder of what is inevitable. You know, we talked about the movie there, three, no, four, four weddings and a funeral, right? Uh, really, life kind of goes the other way around, doesn't it? For every wedding you attend, is 
about four funerals, it feels like. I mean, that's kind of the, there's more funerals than there are weddings, because every wedding has two people, so even by just statistically. But nevertheless, we're, we're reminded again and again of what is inevitable for us. It's important for us to have a good theology of death. Some people see it as the final end. We mentioned that. Nothing after the grave. We're nothing more than molecules. I had one person tell me fairly recently that if I can't see it, I don't believe it. <laughs> if I can't see it, I don't believe it. And if that's true, friends, this, what a terrifying picture of death. There's nothing after the grave. You're annihilated forever. You know, the funny thing is, if we're nothing more than our bodies, you know, our bodies uh, renew themselves every seven years. <laughs> Your body creates new cells, gets rid of old cells, and so forth. So you're not even the same you than you were seven years ago. That's kind of strange. Every seven years, you're, you're literally a different, entirely a different person if there's nothing more to you than your body. That doesn't seem to be true, does it? There are some who believe that death is not the final end, but are afraid. They live in constant fear of death. You know, do everything you can. I want to I savor every minute. It doesn't matter if I'm I'm hooked up to tubes and wires and I want to just continue on and even if that's in a vegetative state for many, many, many years and afraid of what happens when you cross that sod, as we said, that doorway cut and sod. Friends, the worst thing in life is not death. <laughs> it's unbelief. It's living with no mission, no adventure, no purpose, no risk. That's certainly not a biblical view of death. There are others, I think, who are too eager for it. Right? They're too welcoming of it. Uh, that doesn't seem to be right either. Death is the old enemy. Uh, we saw that in Genesis again, Genesis chapter 3. There should be some fight, some, some recognition that this is not the norm. This is not what we're created for. And I, I want to live. And if I have the choice, I'm going to push on and press on to live and serve the Lord for as long as He can give me years in this life. So what's the biblical view? What's the biblical theology of death? Death is our old enemy ever since Eden. But we face it with courage. <laughs> we face it knowing that on the other end of that doorway is glory. And when God brings it on, we take it on with courage and bravery and say, all right, it's time. And I go to be with the Lord. Because the day that I'm apart from this body, I'm at present in the presence of with him and will reign with him forever. Friends, we enjoy spiritual life, even in death. Third, we, Jesus will defeat spiritual evil, finally, and once for all. <laughs> he will defeat spiritual evil, finally, and once for all. Look at 7 through 10. This is glorious. What happens at the end of this thousand years? So he kind of goes, talks about what happens if you die during that thousand year time, that long period of time uh, that we are, we are in. What happens at the end of that thousand years? He mentioned briefly about this release. That was kind of terrifying, right? He comes back to that. Satan is released, released again, not on his own initiative. God is in control. He bound him. He keeps him there. When he wants to let him go for a short period of time, he does it. He's in control. And Satan gets back to the business that he wants to do most. He runs right back into deceiving the nations, causes this huge deception, and then gathers all the armies against him. Same thing we saw in 19. The armies of this world gathered for war against God and his people. 
He references here Gog and Magog. Um, if, you, if you want to know more about Gog and Magog, talk to Mitch. <laughs> because it's Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a prophecy there. And you see a lot of things referenced here from uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, both in chapter 19 and in 20. A lot of references to this final climactic battle. I just want to point out one thing. It des- describes this final battle as happening by sword and fire. Sword and fire. Those are the two things, the two images described of how God brings judgment in the end in Ezekiel. Well, what do we see in 19? Judgment on the enemies of God by sword. What do we see in 20? Judgment upon his enemies by fire. Another reference to the battle here. I believe it's the same battle, but from a different angle. A spiritual side of looking at the same thing. People, numerous people surround the camp of God. I mentioned uh, Tolkien, which I probably mentioned too often, but I love Tolkien. Uh, I mentioned that uh, in the end, they're gathered around Helm's Deep. You know, the last sort of outpost of God's people ready to battle to the end. So Tolkien pictured, I think, what he's read in 19 and 20 here, a final battle. And what happens? Fire consumes them and God brings his judgment. Eventually takes Satan who was left out in the last chapter. What happened to Satan? We learned about the beast and the fall. What happened to Satan? Here he tells us he's thrown into this lake of fire, which is clearly a picture of hell where they were. They end up in the same place. Spiritual evil is coming to an end. That's the promise here in Revelation 20. It's coming to an end. Not just a temporary end, not just kicked out of an area, not just locked away, a final, permanent end. See, what I love about this is this is not escapism. <laughs> this is not, hey, I want to get out of this world as long as I don't, none of this stuff bothers me. <laughs> that's not the picture. And I think that's sometimes a, a common criticism against Christians. You, you just want to die and go to heaven and get away from all those problems. No. No, we want to see God deal with it finally and forever. And that's Revelation 20. Last chapter was symbolic, both chapters are symbolic, but it showed a physical battle. This, in a sense, is the spiritual picture from a different angle in which Satan, a spiritual being, and really the leader of all spiritual evil, is dealt with. Friends, behind all evil in this world, the beast, worldly systems against God, a false prophet, a picture of a, a figure, an antichrist figure, sin and sinners, behind all of this is what? A spiritual enemy who's been there since the Garden of Eden causing his problems, tempting God's people, leading them away from faith. Here we finally see, towards the very end of the Bible, that that evil spiritual force will be ridden of forever. He ends up in the lake of fire. And I've heard from some of you guys, you know, from the sermon series, that's a terrifying image, isn't it? That is a terrifying image. The lake of fire Forever. Notice he doesn't even describe him as dying, but he is tormented day and night, forever and ever. How does this apply to us, friends? Know that there is a spiritual reality behind you. <laughs> Understand that. What you are, who you are, what you do, you're not merely a biological machine. Uh, there is a spiritual force at work in your life, and you are a spiritual creature as well, and there are forces at work. I'll just say a couple of things of just brief application. Don't dabble in spirituality that's not about Christ. There's a lot of spiritual things. Not all of it's about Christ. Some of it's neutral, I guess you could say. I wouldn't even deal with that stuff. I'd stay away from all that. I, you know, everyone's your own conscience. You've got to work through some of these things. I would just stay away from astrology. Uh, somebody say, yeah, it's just fun. I'd stay away from it personally. Superstitions. 
um, uh, particularly occultic type movies, fortune telling. I would just stay away from all that stuff. Understand that we're just we're in a battle. There's no time to play games. Right? No time to play games with that kind of stuff. Don't fear it. Again, God will deal with it all. Wars are won by the greater force or the smarter force. In this case, the greater and the smarter force is clearly God, infinitely greater and stronger. You don't have to live in fear. There's a certain peace about this. We don't have to be afraid. Understand that. Uh, David said in the Psalms, um, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. So you imagine, you've got 10,000 enemy soldiers gathered up against David, and he says, I think I'll take a nap. <laughs> because God's on my side. So I have nothing to fear. No matter, I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. He's got the whole world in his hands. We approach life with confidence, not fear over evil, spiritual evil. And then I would just say pray. Your prayers are powerful. I really think that we will not see how powerful our prayers are until we see it in hindsight from the perspective of eternity. And we look back and we say, wow, look what God did by his mercy through those prayers. Jesus will defeat spiritual evil finally and once for all. And in 11 through 15, death. (laughs) Not just Satan, death will be defeated for all those in Jesus. Look at this, friends. Death will be defeated for all those in Jesus. Death will be gone forever. He describes a great white throne. Now, why great white throne? Well, great because it's God's throne. White because it's pure and perfect. This is not a taint, throne that is tainted with injustice and evil. And it's a throne because he's the king. He's the judge of all the earth. The perfect, holy judge. And from the very presence of God, it describes earth and sky fleeing away from his very presence. That's how powerful his presence is. And then the dead stand before him, small and great. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, slaves, servants, whatever it may be. Everyone stands before him. All are resurrected. It says even the sea, death in Hades, but also the sea. So you think, well, I know someone who was you know, cremated to ashes and dumped into the Pacific Ocean. And how's that guy going to be resurrected? No, God's God, right? <laughs> he, he, resu- he made us from the dust one day. He'll find a way to bring us together to stand before him. And he describes here the books that are open. Two types of books. Well, One group of books, one single book, if you catch that. The books, the first books, I think, refers to the book of your life. A record of you, of all you've done, good and evil. All your secret sins and your open struggles. All you've done in serving and loving and helping. All you've done in selfishness and greed and laziness. And lust, all of it, laid bare before God. The other book is one book. He calls it the book of life. And it's very simple. Those whose names are in the book of life are his forever. He ends by saying that death in Hades is thrown itself into the lake of fire it's gone for go- forever. Death is just eliminated. And then these terrifying words that those whose names are not in the book go to that very same place. Francis almost brought me to tears preparing the sermon. I don't 
anyone that knows me, you've been here, you've been attending here for a while, you know I, I don't like preaching on hell. <laughs> I take no joy in it. But if I'm going to be faithful to this passage and to God, I can't pick and choose. And God uses this, by the way. Peter Hitchens, famous intellectual, funny enough, brother of Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist. But Peter Hitchens uh, describes how he himself, he was an atheist for a long time, and how he came to faith. And uh, surprisingly, he was one, at one point staring at a painting. It was called The Last Judgment by Roger van der Weyden from the 15th century. And it was a picture of the last judgment. It was a picture of hell. And as he began to stare at the picture, this is what he writes. A large catalog of misdeeds, ranging from the embarrassing to the appalling, replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. It was that fear of an honest and true judgment that led him to faith, repentance and faith in Christ. Friends, in the end, God won't force people to love him. He won't force you to stop sinning. He he won't force you to be righteous. In the end, God says, thy will be done. C.S. Lewis said something I think that's helpful in thinking about this as well. He said, there are only, yep, it's on the screen, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. That's those the Christians, of course. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy, joy in God, will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And those who knock, it is opened. Similarly, Dante, the famous writer of the Divine Comedy, said, Men are seen permanently fastened to the central meaning which they have given to their lives. If you have lived for Christ, that is your eternity. If you have lived for yourself, then that is your eternity, an eternity without God and His grace and His love. Friends, everything, everything in this life has to have a finality. It has to have a conclusion. It has to have an end. When? That's God's choice. Evil, rebellion, sin, treason, it cannot last forever. It has to have an end. What happens in the end? God removes it from his presence forever. Friends, in the end, God will open the book of your life. (laughs) What will he see? My guess is he's not going to see a life that's worthy of eternal life. That's not what he's going to see when he opens my book. He's not going to see a life that is worthy of eternal life. But there's another book. There's the book of those who trust in Christ. There's the book of those who hold to the gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection in our place. There's a book for those who belong to God and his love. That's the book of life. George Whitfield, the famous 
famous evangelist from the 18th, 18th century. I have a picture. So here's the neat thing about Whitfield. He was a preacher all over the world. Uh, yeah, I'm going to explain it in a second. But a uh, preacher all over the world. He's probably one of the most influential preachers uh, since, well, not since Billy Graham. Billy Graham and then before him would be Whitfield, reaching really uh, multiple multitudes. God used him to reach many people. He died, so he traveled. He was, an, he was British. Traveled throughout England, led many people to faith in Christ. Traveled the United States, led through up and down the eastern coast, because that's all there was at the time. Died in Newburyport, 30 minutes from here. Did you know that? That's where he died. So he ended up there. They buried his body in the crypt, uh, in the crypt beneath the church. That's the crypt right there. So um, don't worry, that's not his real skull. <laughs> that's a mold of his skull. So, you know, I found that out. Uh, but uh, because he's my sort of historical hero, I had to take that picture. But this is what Whitfield said. After I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. Friends, this is the day in which we will stand before the great white throne and death will be no more. Here's what I would say. Make sure your name is in the book of life. You say, well, how do you do that? It's not a riddle. <laughs> it's not hard. It's very clear in the Bible. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, your name is in the book. All right? So he, he's, this is not like figure out a way. This is trust in Christ as Savior and as Lord, and you are His forever. That's the promise of Scripture. Second, tell people this good news. Tell people this good news. Imagine us as a church if we don't tell them. Friends, love compels us to open our mouths and tell people that there is a Savior and that this day is coming and there is hope for those who trust in Christ. God is just. Understand this. He will only do what is good. Nobody, nobody's going to say God did something unfair. God did something that was unjust or not right or wasn't good. All will say, all will say God did what was right and good and fair and just. You can trust him in that. Just like he looked at creation when he was done and he said it is very good. So he will look at the final day as he begins the new heavens and the new earth and say it is all very good. And friends, when we are there, when we're finally there in heaven, imagine waking up where death is no more. I want to read you one section from the little book, Heaven, there. Uh, he, he, he writes, what won't be in heaven? What won't be in heaven? And there's a couple paragraphs from this. This is page 35, if you do grab a book. No death, no suffering, no funeral homes. Sorry to our brother David. Although I think he'll probably be done by that time. I think I'm serious. He'll be retired forever from funeral homes. No abortion clinics or psychiatric wards. No rape, no missing children. No drug rehabilitation centers. No bigotry, no muggings or killings. No worry or depression or economic downturns. No wars, no unemployment. No anguish over failure and miscommunication. No con men, no locks. No death. No mourning, no pain, no boredom. No arthritis. No handicaps, no cancer, no taxes, no bills, no computer crashes, no weeds, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams and accidents, no septic tanks or backups, no mental illness, no unwanted emails, close friendships but no clicks, 
Laughter, but no put-downs. Intimacy, but no temptation to immorality. No hidden agendas. No backroom deals. No betrayals. Jesus brings victory over spiritual evil and defeats death forever. You ever go on a long trip and uh, you just can't wait to get there? Um, I remember when I went to, to Israel. Uh, just eager. You can't wait to get there. Or... Uh, China. I'm going to China in May, Lord willing, um, through a program at Gordon Conwell. Eager, getting ready for that great, that great trip. Hoping to someday soon go to the UK, actually. That's a whole other thing. Um, a lot of preparations. You don't want to forget anything. You don't want to forget your tickets. You don't want to forget to be your immunizations, your visa, your passports, all your stuff, you know, your toothbrushes and everything. But when you finally get it all done and you finally arrive, what do you say? Done. Done. All that prep mode is over. Arrival time has come. That's what he's picturing for us here, friends. There's a thousand years, there's a long period of time, but when it's done, it's done. And we are with him forever. I want to close with a uh, prayer from the Valley of Vision, this collection of Puritan prayers, and then some of my own prayers, and we'll end, we'll end there. So pray with me. Oh Lord, we live here as a fish in a vessel of water. Only enough to keep, me, keep us alive. But in heaven, we shall swim in the ocean. Here, I have a little air in me to keep me breathing. But there, I shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here, I have a beam of sun to lighten my darkness. A warm ray to keep me from freezing. Yonder, I shall live in light and warmth forever. My natural desires are corrupt and misguided. And it is thy mercy to destroy them. My spiritual longings are of thy planting, and thou wilt water and increase them. Quicken my hunger and thirst after the realm above. Here I can have the world. There I shall have thee in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer. There is assurance without suspicion, asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts more burden than benefit. There is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconsistency, rest without weariness. Give me to know that heaven is all love, where the eye affects the heart, and the continual viewing of thy beauty keeps the soul in continual transports of delight. Give me to know that heaven is all peace, where error, pride, rebellion, passion raise no head. Give me to know that heaven is all joy, the end of beginning, uh, the end of believing, fasting, praying, mourning, humbling, watching, fearing, and repining, and lead me to it soon. Father, thank you so much for your word. You have given your people, your church, your word for 2,000 years and until the day in which you return to keep us focused and faithful in you. Lord, help us to be reminded as a church family this morning of what is to come so that we might keep our eyes on Jesus so that we might be faithful in this life, so that when we face difficulties, criticisms, ostracism, whatever difficulties we face for following Christ in this world, would set our eyes on Jesus and know that we'll one day be with you. And more than that, Lord, let love compel us to share this good news as broadly, as widely, as lovingly, as honestly, and as passionately as we can, by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, our Lord. Amen.
We're going to sing this prayer. We're going to sing the prayer of one pure and holy passion in response to the prayer we just had just now. Would you stand with me? Give me one. 